Punk Rock Month continues on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. So far, Marcus, we've had Black Flag last week and the week before that, a killer episode on Dead Kennedys. Now, as we've done in previous years, this week, we're going to re-release one of our favorite episodes that we've done about punk rock. I loved getting ready for this episode because we got to listen to a lot of the Sex Pistols songs and read about the craziness and how they shook the United Kingdom before they shook everywhere else. A fascinating story. It's week three of Punk Rock Month 2023, and now on with the show. Hey, Marcus, I've got an idea to celebrate the final episode of Punk Rock Month 2022. What's your idea, Ray? Come on, give me a hand with the tarps and let's get this uh, imbalanced time machine out of mothballs. Because there's a date you've been talking about ever since we started talking about doing an episode about the Sex Pistols. There's a date that I've been kind of like holding on to. And now just let me reach over here and uh, program it in. (laughs) You see what date I'm putting in there? June 4th, 1976. Ring a bell? It was a day that changed punk rock forever. It kind of changed rock and roll as well. It was one of those concerts that actually 40 people were at, but 1,500 people claimed they were there. You know, one of those shows. I've been to a few of those, yes. Yes, those shows. But in actuality, we know Slaughter and the Buzzcocks were there because they opened the show. We also know that Stephen Morrissey was there, who became Morrissey of the Smiths. Uh We also know a couple of members of Joy Division New Order were there. A member of The Fall was at that show. So all of these bands who were influential in the punk and post-punk movement in England were at this show and ended up forming bands because they saw these guys who couldn't play just wreck the crowd in an unbelievable way filled with fury and emotion. And they were like, hell, if these guys can do it, we can too. The essence of punk rock right there, right? Whether it's in London or New York, these guys can't really play too well, but fuck, it's fun. Oh, boy, were they having fun, and they loved pissing the people off, especially the establishment at that time, because these kids were so angry at the establishment. We've talked about this time period and how the youth were pissed off, unemployed, and just needed something to do. And punk rock came out of it. It was an outlet for the angers that didn't blow a gasket collectively. The youth of London, especially in 1975 and 76. As we've talked about before, Marcus, in America, people were tired of other shit. But over there, the shit was in the streets. Oh, it was bad in the streets. Kids were riding. They were marching in the streets. They were violent. It was a big problem, and it was all part of that post-World War II fallout that continued to happen that took the United Kingdom a long time to recover from. When I'm looking at footage that was shot for the various documentaries and films about the Sex Pistols, so that's 1975-76, when you see street scenes, they all have occasional houses that are still not rebuilt inside even though the frame or you know the structure generally is there it's 
hard to imagine having 30 years later buildings still not repaired from World War II and these kids growing up in these times. Way different than anything right. we've ever had to experience. And in many ways, we're lucky for that, too, because ooh, that's scary. I hadn't considered that that was the general state of affairs at that point in the 1970s, and I really wasn't thinking that it was. Lesson learned. Thank goodness for these documentaries and the video that they shot because it gives us a real feel for what was happening. And one of the things that we learned from this concert as well, that punk rock came from the kids, not from the record labels. And that's something that needs to be understood throughout all of this. That's why I connect the mods to some degree and the punks. A lot of the kids who were mods or the next thing after mods looked at punk rock and said, yeah, and they're talking about it, how people who came to one show with long hair and stuff would come at the next show with purple mohawks or with something crazy on their face, all kinds of makeup, and people were getting tattoos in weird places and piercing all kinds of stuff because they were emulating the feeling that they were getting the freedom they were feeling from coming to see punk rock. Interesting you mention all the piercings and the pins and stuff. Do you know why they were wearing the uh, pins all over their clothes and their ripped clothes? Because a lot of them were wearing stuff that was not even thrift shop. It was trash. It was legs yeah. torn out the side from the knee, held together by mm -hmm. safety pins. That's what, what the fashion sense came from, right? That and the fact that it was a symbol of the poverty of the youth at that time as well. It was real poverty, dude. Those yep. people couldn't afford new pants. Absolutely. And Johnny Lydon, before he became Johnny Rotten, would wear trash bags with safety pins as shirts once in a while as well. Some of it's a statement with him especially. That's all I'm going to say. True. And we got to get around to talking about the characters that are the Sex Pistols. And before we get to Johnny, and before we get to the other members of the band, we have to talk about a guy named Malcolm McLaren. He was part of the scene on the King's Road, right? All that whole fashion boutique scene for a long time. Always got himself, injected himself into the music side of the art scene and even straight up art. He was a part of all kinds of different things throughout his career, if you want to call it that because it's a wild ride for him and sometime we should just focus on the life and times of Malcolm McLaren because it's a great story. Absolutely and his sex shop is where a lot of the punk rock beginnings happened in the United Kingdom. <laughs> yeah, didn't so Matlock work there? Yeah, it was either Matlock or Jones that worked there. Maybe both. No matter what it was that caught his interest, he always found his way right into the middle of things, right? That is true. And he found a way to create drama and garnish attention with whatever he was getting into the middle of. And he was a chaos creator, I guess you could say, would be a great way to describe Malcolm McLaren because he believed in chaos. And chaos got him a lot of money and a lot of attention over the years. He also generated a lot of energy as far as creating stars. Like Vivienne Westwood became a star because they ran the sex boutique together in Chelsea, right? When he went over to work with 
with the New York Dolls for a while. Mm -hmm. His whole mission for going there was to plug in and find out what the essence was and help him to define it a little bit and help them. Didn't bear fruit initially, but that's why the Dolls were ready to launch when the world was ready for the Dolls, you know? But back in London, he starts getting plugged into some music that these guys in his shop are interested in, right? A couple of guys that were his sex customers, Paul Cook and Steve Jones, were talking about their musical aspirations to Mr. McLaren. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And he recommended that his shop assistant, Glenn Matlock, play bass for them. And for as much as we're going to slag on Malcolm McLaren, you said it best. The one super skill of his was putting people together and connecting the right people to make the right things happen. He had that kind of vision where he was able to see that and make it happen. But he was also a dirtbag. You had to go there this quickly? <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's the Sex Pistols, Filth and Fury. <laughs> absolutely. That's a good documentary to watch, folks, if you want to uh, find out the basis for a lot of this. It's them shooting it, and they're in the middle of it. It's not like the great rock and roll swindle, which we'll talk about, but it is them 
in their own words, in a lot of cases, saying who they are and what they are. And we should do that too, Marcus. We are the imbalanced history of rock and roll. I'm Ray Koob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And we're brought to you each week by Boldfoot Socks, American-grown, American-sewn, and you can find out more about them on boldfoot.com. Enter the code HISTORY15 in the code box, and you could save 15% on your first purchase. Also, thanks to Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro, supplying the brews that fuel us here on the Imbalanced History every week. In case you haven't figured out, man, we're talking about this time when punk rock was stewing and brewing all over. And in London, the Sex Pistols were right in the middle of it, and Malcolm was stirring the pot. So he's got these three guys, but they need a singer. So, you know, every Svengali needs to get in the middle of all that stuff. But finding the singer for this band, not exactly like anything else. No. There was a group of uh, guys that hung out together, and they called themselves the Johnnies because all their names were Johnnies, but everybody thought they were a street band. And somebody saw Johnny Rotten with this group of Johnnies and said, that guy is the one. And so they asked him to audition. And we've talked about in previous episodes about John Lydon's audition for the Sex Pistols, right? Ray, you're not going to believe this one. Johnny Rotten's mom was a huge fan of people like Alice Cooper, Mark and T-Rex, David Bowie, as well as some of the old blues musicians. She listened to music of all types and really turned her son on to music so that he had a variety. I call that good parenting, Marcus. And if she did raise him right, why was he so pissed off? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question because of everything around him. He cared about the society and the world around him. And seeing all of his mates and everybody struggle and seeing the poor being treated as badly as they were in England at that time was a big problem for him because he was so, part of so, the So underclass. let's get back to it, though, the audition, man, because <laughs> politics is politics. And this is like 45 years ago, right? True. But, but let me ask you, is that why you think he picked I'm 18 as his audition song? Malcolm McLaren liked it as well. And I'll tell you who wasn't too crazy about the whole thing. Steve Jones. He said it was sloppy, and he was just mocking the whole thing in an arrogant way. Taking a piss is the way he put it, which means he's you know trying to get a rise out of you and uh, you know mocking way. And frankly, he said that the, you know that was the, the the first time he went. Oh man, I don't know about this guy. And yet he admits that he. And Malcolm were very close. Late in the movie that Julian Temple did, he kind of admits that it's a regret for him that he listened to Malcolm on certain things. Maybe not Johnny, but certainly when it came to sacking Matlock and bringing in Sid. It's an interesting dynamic that I didn't recognize before, and I'm learning as we're doing this episode and getting ready to do it. Wow. This whole thing turned on the tongue-in-cheek, and Jones just kind of went along with it because he was mates with McLaren. He, He also claimed that the Sex Pistols kept him out of a life of crime, too, so he was on his way to a really bad way spend a year at a school like a home like a home for troubled kids so the sex pistols was something that was really important to him because it saved his life might have been his motivation to learn the guitar and become better at it because he does 
become mm-hmm. a figure in punk rock guitar. Yeah. And he also, at that original audition, described Johnny Rotten as looking like the hunchback of Notre Dame as he was singing, which is funny because one of the movies that Johnny used to watch as a kid was King Richard III, and oh, yeah. the hunchback of Notre Dame was drawn to that character, maybe partially because he was in a coma for meningitis as a child and had to relearn everything, and he felt like the hunchback because everything was messed up in his body and he was physically weak, so maybe there was that relative factor. What I noticed was the way they interspersed little segments of Richard III and all the way through the thing as it kind of fit into the storyline that Julian Temple was telling in that movie about the filth and the fury. And that's what it is, man. This whole thing is a crazy ride for everybody in it, including Malcolm, I think. But Cookie's kind of a quiet character. And I don't know how good he was with all of it, but really have much to say, except he really kind of, you know, showed his acting chops a little bit. There's that movie scene with Sting when he gets accosted on the road by them, right? Oh, yeah. You see that? I forgot about that. Like, what? It's all of this. And I'm looking at Sting and I'm thinking, this is right around the time that he's starting the police and all his pre-band career, if you will, man. Teacher, actor, musician. Oh, he just keeps showing up everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Future bad guy in Dune. One of the other things that keeps popping up in a YouTube search or anything else, and it's in both of these is the Bill Grundy Show episode. Oh, yeah. This is where they make their name, their bones. They get really great negative publicity leading to the all publicity is good as long as they spell the name right kind of an attitude. Mm -hmm. And it kind of blows up on them because, you know, Bill Grundy is kind of known as your favorite drunken uncle on TV over there. And he even admits, hey, these guys are drunker than me, you know? Mm -hmm. And they go into this whole thing and he kind of slips into the thing about all this shit and then he goes, what was that? And he's just not. And the next thing you know, they're throwing every word at him and he's he's going to break with a stunned look on his yeah. face yet trying to be composed in very British TV, you know? Crazy! One of the uh, members of the Sex Pistols pointed to Susie because he had asked the girls if they were okay with everything or something like that, and they just nodded and smiled and laughed. And then one of them said, Susie Sue's a big fan of yours. And he said, oh, you're a fan of mine. Would you like to meet after the show? Wink, wink, nod, nod, like totally being a lecher. And so Steve Jones ripped him and started calling him names, and then he called him a, a dirty bastard. And then, of course, Grundy pushed him further and further, and he said, you're a dirty fucker, and just Laid yes. into him, and I think well, that's it then. I think Grundy was scared at that point. I think he started getting <laughs> nervous. Like these motherfuckers might be coming after me. They might cause real chaos if we're not careful. And what happens if they get up from their yeah, chairs? They basically showed the whole world that he was a drunken lecher, and they made it very clear on TV. And I don't know if it helped his career moving forward, but it sure the hell helped the Sex Pistols moving forward. Marcus, against all odds and forces of nature, they make an album. And it's the only one they really made. And I'm using the air quotes, which I swear I wouldn't use anymore. (laughs) Go to timeout. 
other releases, more air quotes, would come. I'm, I'm really stretching it there. But <laughs> never mind the bollocks is the Sex Pistols was pretty much it. It was the tits. It was the shit. It beat the crap out of everything that had come before it that felt old and bloviated. Eh, a few bands kind of held up against the wind of punk rock, I guess you would say. But the wind had been blowing, but it was ready to become its own blitzkrieg in rock and roll form. Ray, I remember getting this album as a 13-year-old a couple years after all of this craziness happened, after Sid died and all of that, and being like, whoa, this album is furious. This album is different than anything I have ever heard. Anarchy in the UK and God Save the Queen were the first two songs I heard. A friend of mine's older brother played them for us. I immediately, like within two weeks, went up to Wax Tracks in Denver and bought the album. And listen to it relentlessly. I still have my copy somewhere in my vinyl, and this album mine's is important. greasy. I don't know why, but mine's greasy. Did you use some of that cleaner on it, or is it the humidity that causes the grease? No, I think it was the at a party somewhere, oil. and it got a little grease on it, and it spread inside the cardboard. I, it's not oh. inside, so I, I never got you know yeah. worried about it. Seriously, up and down, the album's great. There are like two or three songs that are just meh, but overall, it is a solid, solid album. And they let all their feelings and all their issues fly, the way a punk album should be. When you listen to some of the stuff that they put out, and I wouldn't say released as a new album, because this really is the only new album they're going to release. But when they get to the swindle portion of the program, they're recordings and doing all kinds of stuff and just filling up this album, because that's what the swindle was. That's what Malcolm was telling them to do. Here at the beginning, they were actually trying. They were trying to formulate what they were doing and put it on record. Now, one of the interesting choices they made was in the producers that they used for making this album. First, Chris Thomas, who is known more for his work with Roxy Music, and I don't know that they were pilloried as much as the Beatles and the Stones, etc., by the guys when they were coming out. You know, he wore the Pink Floyd t-shirt and made fun of Pink Floyd and things like that. So... It's funny that they end up going to a guy who would be also identified closely with mainstream rock, right? Yeah, I know. I was looking at the list of uh, credits under Chris Thomas's name, including Procol Harum, The Pretenders, Pete Townsend, Badfinger, and to deal with a bunch of misfits like the Sex Pistols had to drive <laughs> that dude crazy. Seriously, he had to be banging his head against the soundboard the entire time going, what the hell am I doing? Especially when Sid couldn't play. The other guy who was in the studio with them was Bill Price and he seems to have been more on an alternative edge as far as his production involvements except for Guns N' Roses and a couple other things along the way. So maybe between Price and Thomas, they found a way to capture the chaos and the mayhem that was going on on the other side of the glass and wherever they needed to fix things or, you know, produce them up a little bit, they did. And I would say the output from these sessions in 76 and 77 are the best recorded, best sounding stuff that the Sex Pistols ever did. There, I said it. 
Of course, being indoctrinated by God Save the Queen and Anarchy in the UK, still my favorite songs on the album, but with songs like Holidays in the Sun and Bodies really give you that anti-establishment attitude that was completely inherent in the Sex Pistols. EMI as well, because they slagged the crap out of the recording industry and really let you know how that all went down through their eyes. And- right, because they had a two-year deal or a two-album deal, right? And after the first album and all the controversy from God Save the Queen especially and from the shows and all the stuff that they're becoming infamous for. EMI decides to bail out, gives them a check anyway and this is the beginning of Malcolm going, wait a minute we didn't do anything and they gave us a check. That's what I'm saying, you know, that's part of the process here and maybe why there was only one album. All I can tell you is that when I started looking into this, I would have never thought that this would be one of those nuggets that I would find. When he was writing Anarchy in the UK, Johnny Lydon says he hated the rhyme scheme because nothing rhymes with antichrist. <laughs> and I almost like passed coffee through my nose when I read that one this morning. Like, Are you fucking kidding me too? So, you know, he did pretty good, though. I think he did pretty good with all of that. And uh, that's always going to be one of your favorites if you like this band and this album. Holidays in the Sun kind of sets the tone for a lot of punk rock. And we see it with some of the bands I want to talk to you about. And we see that, you know, the way we've talked about other bands projected to their descendants in rock and roll, like the Dead Kennedys look to that song. You know it, right? Oh, absolutely. God Save the Queen caused such a stir that they couldn't walk down the street without getting yelled at, beat up, or otherwise tormented by the public. That's what happens when you mess with the British tradition, I suppose. And they did. That song at the Queen's Jubilee, it was like, man, as big of a fuck you as you could give them. Without a doubt. And the fact that they cruised down the river uh, playing it on the day of the Jubilee was even more of a slap in the face of the Queen. Yes, Talk about punk rock. Slap. Seriously. She's sliding by on her private transport into the festivities. Crazy stuff. Absolutely. And how they weren't arrested for that is beyond me. We've got rules, mate, and we have to follow them no matter what Scotland Yard says. They didn't do anything but make people mad. They were good at that. You know what song really does it for me, man? Pretty Vacant. It pretty much sums up the whole punk rock thing, you know? We're so pretty. We're so pretty. We're so pretty vacant.
you know, they put it out there almost like, you know, pour me, pour me, pour me another drink, bartender. You know? <laughs> um, it's kind of like that, except for they're so pretty vacant. And I love that. When I first heard these guys, these songs jumped at me before I even knew there wasn't an album called Nevermind the Bollocks. Whenever I heard something from them, which wasn't that often, it was normally from the college radio. It's just like, wow. And to add to the pretty vacant concept, during the Filth and the Fury, Johnny Rotten actually said something to the effect of, this was nice because even the ugly people could be beautiful too and not feel afraid <laughs> and not feel like they were somebody different. They felt like they fit into something and were a part of something and it wasn't just all pretty people culture, which was pretty interesting and pretty on point. But another thing that Lydon says is just as on point and point and he says, we were like a Harold Pinter play. Shouldn't work, <laughs> but it does. True, true, And I true. loved his statements in those days, the things that he would come out with. You know, later on, we don't need to talk about later on because we all said things in the 80s and 90s that maybe we didn't mean. I don't know. He said a lot of stuff, let's just say that. But Malcolm, being Malcolm, was not afraid of saying, oh, yes, that was my thing, or I mm -hmm. thought of that. He claimed that uh, he invented rot, you know, and and uh, Lydon says, you don't create me, I am me. And that's pretty much his mantra, even now. You know, Marcus, despite the fact that he worked with Malcolm McLaren from the very beginning through the end of the Sex Pistols when he decides to call it a day, Jones always felt like McLaren was full of shit. <laughs> Johnny Rotten said, Malcolm stole my ideas. I think they all said that. Glenn mentioned that. I think uh, Paul mentioned that as well. And one of the few times in The Filth and the Fury that Paul spoke was about Malcolm taking their ideas. And that's on point with Malcolm. He was managing Adam and the Ants, and he took his band, split them from Adam, and then he formed Bow Wow Wow with the backing band that used to be the Ants and little uh, Annabella Lewin. And these are the things that fall out of the initial blast of punk rock bands leaving and changing and different ideas coming off of what they innovate and change as we move through into the 80s. But for today, Marcus, we're right there in the afterbirth of punk rock, uh, bloodied and ready to roll. And I think we should take the break, put on some fresh boldfoot socks, have a pint of Crooked Eye Brew, get back to it and talk about the great rock and roll swindle of 1979 on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Hey, folks, if you haven't checked out Boldfoot Socks yet, go to their website and do it today, boldfoot.com. And if you like what you see and you want to place an order, you can save 15% on us by entering the code HISTORY15 in the discount box. Now, Marcus, you've had some great personal experience wearing your Boldfoot Socks. That is correct, Ray. I am an active cyclist. After hearing Josh tell us about his experience running a race in the desert in his bold foot socks. I had to give it a try on the bike, and they held really well. My feet didn't feel funky afterward, and after my spin class, my feet felt great. Not all wet and yucky. Wet and yucky, bad. Feeling bold, good. <laughs> Go to boldfoot.com and check out all the styles, and they've got a wide variety of styles, no matter what your mood is about your socks and uh, colors, designs. It all fits into what you want out of a sock that holds up, and they definitely give you that support you need. I know from the times I've worn mine. 
Make sure you go to boldfoot.com and use the code HISTORY15 to get 15% off of your first order. Look, they're your feet. Be bold. When you get thirsty, you need a beverage that you can count on, a beverage that will satisfy that thirst. And if you're a beer lover like me, and I know you are too, Marcus, nothing tops the fresh brews at Crooked Eye Brewery. They make the brews right there. You can actually look in the window of the brew room and see the brew being made. And a lot of other things are happening uh, on weeknights, various things, including Thursday trivia, uh, the Wednesday blues jam. They also have open mic night the first, third, and fifth Mondays of every month if you get that lucky fifth Monday. I can't do math when I'm a crooked eye. Not if I have like (laughs) one crooked eye PA, I can tell you that. And open mic Mondays now alternates with name that song. Ray, I hear vinyl night's coming back to crooked eye. Yeah. Starting in May, it's the second Tuesday of every month. Vinyl night. I bring mine, you bring yours. We all have a real good time. Always something fun going on there. We're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. And, of course, in Delco at Jamie's House of Music. Pouring the cure for what ails you in Hapro since 2014. We'll see you at Crooked Eye. Back for more talk about the Sex Pistols, the one-of-a-kind band on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Ray and Marcus together. And, buddy, I want to put out this idea that you have been lukewarm to because it pokes a hole in the entire premise, which, by the way, was created and promoted by Malcolm McLaren. He is a master at all that stuff. He created the doctrine, so to speak, that the Sex Pistols invented punk rock. And... I've done a little bit of digging here, Marcus, and what I found is that they were part of the wave of punk rock. And this is what I will say about their place in it. They are one of the few bands that did an exemplary job of playing and representing punk rock to the world. There are a couple on this list, but they are amongst those bands. And that includes the only band that matters, Marcus, The Clash, formed in 76 released in 77. It includes the Buzzcocks, formed in 76, released in 78. Now, the Buzzcocks guys went to Sex Pistols gigs. I get that. The Damned, formed in 76, released in 77. The Jam, formed in 72, and a lot of the walking riffs that are in some of my favorite Sex Pistols songs show up in the work of the Jam between the beginning and when they start recording in 77. But they were around. Jam 69, formed in 75, released in 78, and that included Angels with a Dirty Face. And the other one is 999, and their song Homicide specifically, formed in 76, released in 78. So what I'm saying is these bands were already happening and on their way as the Sex Pistols got out and led the charge. Every one of your points and those bands are valid in the discussion. There's no doubt that punk rock would have happened regardless. I don't care what Malcolm says. That dude's a blowhard. You're 100% correct about that. He didn't invent punk rock. The Sex Pistols didn't invent punk rock. We've already determined that in other episodes. We're going back as far as Link Ray and Eddie Cochran and Little Richard, who pretty much was the first badass of rock and roll 
sister Rosetta Tharp was punk rock. All of those cats, Buddy Holly was punk rock when he told those ridiculous producers to fuck off and he wanted to produce himself. So there, but he did it in a Texas gentlemanly way. But there is no doubt those bands would have happened. But would those punk bands have been what they were and how they sounded without having seen the Sex Pistols? Would the Buzzcocks be what the Buzzcocks became if they had not opened up for the Sex Pistols that night? That is the question. Would the Damned have been the Damned the way the Damned is had there not been the Sex Pistols? That is maybe more of the question because punk rock is because you are correct. Oh, that there was evidence, Marcus, of these bands and what they sounded like. Were they uh, Spooner Crooners before they heard the Sex Pistols? Were they on their way and that was the fire that they needed to set the whole thing off? Those are all valid questions and those are all fair points. But again, they might have been the match that lit the fire and really extended the flame out because, like you said... Punk rock was going to happen regardless, but it happened with a fury. Rage Against the Machine kind of changed things the way with their fury and their anger. The Sex Pistols, when they did their thing, were so pissed off at the system, so pissed off at being poor, so pissed off at being marginalized and treated like shit for being poor, that they were like, F you, we're going to fight back. And they fought back with their words. John even said in The Filth and the Fury, I couldn't fight with violence, I had to fight with words. He also said, I think it was him that said that they were fashion fueled by poverty. Uh, that was the uh, all the clothes that they wore, right? Talking about, he said a lot of things in these documentaries, Mark. Is the one thing that I saw in The Filth and the Fury, and I went, oh, band playing, and the crowd down front gently bobbing. It's the beginning of them bobbing along and leading this slam dancing, mm-hmm. the root of the pogo, punk rock dancing. But it started with that gentle up and down mm-hmm. front. Even at the beginning of the Sex Pistols and other bands would see it and feel it too because it kind of became the thing. It became the way it moved you if you were a young punk. Absolutely. And that ethos carried over even into the 90s. I saw Primus once and Les Claypool came out, had his bass on his back like a backpack, and he just stood on the monitor with his fingers on his chin, rubbing his chin like he was thinking, looking at the crowd. And they were just slowly bouncing and slowly bouncing and getting more more and more into it and more into the groove and then all of a sudden he stepped back threw his bass around hit the first note and the pit exploded and it was insanity and that was the punk ethos that they were able to create perfect i think we talked earlier about why glenn matlock was let go or kicked out of the band can you ever explain to me why they brought in a guy like sid vicious who couldn't play his instrument, didn't even know how to hold the bass. Why did they even bring him in? They brought him in because of his look, strictly because of his look and his attitude. They were saying that he was like the biggest Sex Pistols fan ever, and he was at every single one of their shows and always in the front row. And if you look at some of that footage before he joined the band, you see him as a little pimply teenager in the front row bouncing. All I want to say is nice swastika t-shirt dickhead what a fucking asshole he was a fucking asshole you wear that in england after they just had the shit bombed out of him 25 years ago by those guys fuck you man that's not being punk rock that's just being a flaming fucking asshole i agree 100 percent, and i'm sure he got punched in the face many times by old vets for wearing that shirt 
Rightly so. Yeah, Sid was a fucker, and he basically was the downfall of the band as well. And the fact that Malcolm played everybody against each other would say, oh, these guys are saying this about you, and then he'd go to the other guy and say, oh, these guys are saying this about you, and he totally used the divide-and-conquer art of war strategy and got them to boot Glenn Matlock, which was the biggest mistake because they would have been far bigger and they would have had a longer-lasting power had they kept Glenn Matlock and not brought Sid in. Steve Jones at one point says things that have gone a lot differently if we made a second album, which they never did. And they bring Sid in. And somewhere along the cosmic flow, this girl who was born in Philadelphia and grew up in Huntington Valley, where I grew up outside of Philadelphia, Nancy Spongeon shows up and she works her way into Sid's circle. And I had a really disturbing thought this morning while I was looking at all this and where she grew up. Now, she was raised Jewish, but if she had attended Catholic school, we're the same age, she might have been one of my classmates in school. I went to Catholic school for a few years before I broke out of there. And that that was like, whoa! (laughs) No kidding. But that whole episode, the movie, was very well done, but it's disgusting and it's gross. And that's carried on when Malcolm puts out Who Killed Bambi, which was horrible, and the band paid for it, I think. I think that ended up coming out partially out of their hand. What the fuck, man? man? I just don't get this shit. He got away with so much, and that included bringing in Sid, who, like I said, didn't even know how to hold the bass at first. He actually asked Lemmy to teach him how to play bass at some point. What? Yeah. You're a git. Get away from me, kid. Before he was asked to join the Sex Pistols, he was playing drums for a short period with Susie and the Banshees. And that didn't last long because he wasn't very good at that either. (laughs) Everybody seemed to like him for his look. They said he was a good-looking punk. And I guess he was the beautiful of the uglies, as Johnny Rotten called it or something like that. Never in the history of rock and roll, Marcus, was an album-slash-movie project ever more aptly titled as the great rock and roll swindle. <laughs> Musically, it is indeed the epitome of larcenous intent. <laughs> Two albums worth a slop. Awful. You, you really think it's awful slop? Here are my picks for the worst. Substitute. Terrible. Their live versions are better. The whole thing with friggin' and the Reagan in the movie, just a bad sea shanty and worse theater. <laughs> and to call it the Sex Pistols with the version of Hands presented here is yet another count of musical larceny, Marcus. It is, but it shows you how much Malcolm thought he was the Sex Pistols as well, because he did the vocals on that song. I actually think that's hilarious. And I have no time for his crap. (laughs) Fair. But you know what, though? Sid Vicious doing that Come On Everybody is okay. It's not bad. It's okay in a punk rock attitude way. I like Lonely Boy a lot on there. Silly Thing as well. And for as much as we dislike Sid, his version of My Way is okay. But Well, I kind of agree with you there, buddy, because I put it in the category of surprisingly good. And uh, Steve Jones said that he actually enjoyed producing that track. Uh, the only thing he enjoyed about the whole process. So bad that it's good, perhaps, but, and I also put in that category, I want to be me. Uh, surprisingly good out of the stuff that was, you know, all there. And yeah. then the other good stuff that I liked was I'm Not Your Stepping Stone, which I'd heard before, and I liked that. 
And believe it or not, their take on Rock Around the Clock, including the Scream solo at the end. I like that a lot. Roadrunner's pretty offensive, too. I forgot about that one. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a baby having a temper tantrum. Openly taunting everyone. Look, we know the words. We're not even going to sing them. We're going to change them. It was a total fuck you to the person who bought that and took it home. It really was. That's good. That's fine. I don't know how many people actually bought it. Research department. You know, I've seen the movie a few times, and somewhere in one of my boxes, there's a VHS tape of the great rock and roll swindle. I don't know where it is, but it's in one of my radio boxes somewhere, and that movie is awful. It really is, but there's some good British humor in it, too. If you like good British humor, there's some good British humor, but for the most part, it's pretty crappy and punk rock. Well, Virgin didn't spill too much red ink on it. It did peak at number seven on the UK album chart and did okay in Australia, but nothing here and really nothing minimal impact as a movie in America. It later became a kind of a punk curiosity. People will watch it, but it's not really a thing. And when you look at it, it is, again, what the title says it is. (laughs) It walks like a duck. It talks like a duck. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) They got swindled by the industry, and now they're swindling you to give them money. Thank you, and have a nice life, everybody. (laughs) And that's kind of what happens, right? Jones does some stuff. He did some solo stuff. I saw him the first time I was in L.A. He played himself. It'd be years later, man, but when I would get into watching Californication on uh, Showtime, he was a character on that show. He played Krull, and he worked with uh, Tim Minchin's character, Atticus Fetch. <laughs> it's kind of a funny, weird thing. I mean, he was just pretty much playing himself, like being a, a roadie-type guy. And he did a lot of that stuff, I think, after the Pistols. I know we're starting to wrap things up, Ray, but some really interesting aspects or facts about the Sex Pistols that I found along the way doing some of the reading, including the fact that Mark Bolin liked them. He found them to be believable and that they were violent of the mind and not of the body, which I thought was really Hmm. interesting. And it kind of shows you the love child side of Mark Bolin as well, because he was looking at it from that aspect. Also, they had a show around Christmas time. It was the holiday. It was cold outside. The townsfolk were singing Christmas songs outside the show in protest. And somebody from the media said, what do you think about all those people singing out there? He's like, oh, no, they're cold. We're not. <laughs> and they laughed and walked to the stage. Wow. They did things their way, and for as much as I don't agree with some of their things, they did it their way, and I give them a lot of respect and a lot of love for the force that they were and the impact that they had on music. They were opposed every step of the way. Sometimes they couldn't get out of their own way, but it's part of what said in the stuff that we watched as we were getting ready and part of what occurred to my head, that being blacklisted the way they were almost, and I say almost, saved the Sex Pistols. God saved the rock. He's gotten over and bloated for God's sakes, Marcus. I know. But it isn't that Johnny Rotten just yet. By the time they get to San Francisco in 1978, though, they were like the walking dead. A blender full of frogs set to frappe. They were no fun. Yes, Stephen Paul left the band, flew to England. Sid bunked off with Nancy somewhere. I think he went back to New York City. Yeah, and the guys who flew back said that. They just was like, this is it. This is it. 
we're done. They knew. And then you talk about Sid and Nancy at the very end of The Filth and the Fury. It's an interview being filmed and Sid nods off during the filming. And Nancy sponges there and she's talking. It's her final days too, man. That is spooky. And then she's hitting him, gives him an inhaler and he wakes up. He's being all weird. Oh, I don't know who allowed him to sit in front of a camera that's too fucking weird. English becomes a second language for him. It's just like, ah. Oh. And then R.I.P. to Nancy Sponge in October 1978. He was murdered in the space that they were sharing in Chelsea. The police arrest him. There is a story of another possible killer that never really gets much traction because February 2nd, the following year, 1979, Sid overdoses, right? While he's out on bail. Yeah, I can see why the uh, police wouldn't want to look any further into any of that because Nancy did not deserve to go the way she went. That is an unfair and no, cruel Whatever happened, it was horrible. Horrible. Absolutely, and- completely wrong. Sid may or may not have done it. The drug dealer... May or may not have done it. We'll never know. The damage in this rock and roll situation we've been talking about this week on the podcast, Marcus, is almost immeasurable because it seeps out into everybody's life. And we could talk about some day about all of them later in life more and that kind of thing if you want. But this was the essence of who they were and the difference they made getting into the rock and roll hall of fame seems almost a feat accompli when they've already been broken up for years but they get in in 2006 but what happened when they got inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame my friend do share ray in typical sex pistols fashion brother marcus they called the rock hall and said ah we're not coming you're a piss stain. <laughs> they called the rock hall a piss stain. And that was how they said, uh, thanks for putting us in, but no thanks. That's an absolute punk rock <laughs> way to oh. thank them. I'm sure they were very grateful for that kind of a thanking as well. <laughs> We've talked about people's reaction, our reaction, and people we know in regard to a lot of things about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But what we found out in the last few months about the artists and their attitudes that they've expressed openly and directly to them. It creates an ongoing picture that, you know, is evolving a little bit of the relationship between the artists who created the music that made the hall and the people who built the hall. Any other thoughts you guys might have about those wankers, the sex pistols? Keep them to yourselves. We don't give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, Marcus, tell them where they can send their thoughts and where they can tell me to go fuck myself. You can do all of that at theimbalancehistory at gmail.com. You can hit our Facebook page, The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, at Imbalance Histo on Twitter, or The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll on Instagram. Don't forget all our episodes are there embedded in the app that you listen to your podcasts on, or you can find them all on our website, imbalancedhistory.com. The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll is a production of Dark Doc Media. Marcus, this is how we wrap up another Punk Rock Month, our second. And as always, it's always fun to do the new episodes with you because you are a joy to talk about punk rock with. Just as a podcast partner, just saying, brother. We have fun, man. Yes, we do. I love my punk. Till the next time that we figure out what we'll do for next year in Punk Rock Month or any other episode coming up down the line, I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Cole. And this is the Imbalance History. Fuck all.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 